Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. And a very warm welcome to this specially extended edition of our regular Sunday morning programme. I'm Judith Lay and I'm at your service as we take a look back at some of the guests we've featured and the music we've played during the past year. Whenever I look back over past programmes, I'm always amazed at the variety of speakers and subjects they cover, and their generosity in sparing time to talk to me, often during a brief and busy visit to the island. So, my thanks to all of them. I will pray rejoicing from my heart. Rejoicing from my heart For in Him my victory's lifted high His salvation is my cry He has overcome my enemy I praise His scorn, the enemy I delight in His deliverance The Lord is our deliverance Pass the promise to our sons Keith and Kristen Getty and Pass the Promise, a track from their album Confessio, which in the spring of this year was nominated for a Grammy for the Best Roots Gospel Album. It didn't win its category, but it was good to see an album of Christian music holding its own alongside some of the biggest names in the music world. In the year, someone who is both a committed Christian and a highly respected scientist gave me the perfect chance to explore the true relationship between science and religion. Reverend Professor David Wilkinson is an ordained minister in the Methodist Church as well as being an academic, an astrophysicist and a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. And he knows that there is no conflict between science and religion. To take this a little further, he asked us to consider the question, what is a kiss? A kiss for a scientist is very simple. It's the approach of two pairs of lips, the reciprocal transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes, and the juxtaposition of two orbicular muscles in a state of contraction. That's a kiss, scientifically. But if I go to my wife and say to Alison, let's get together for a mutual transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes. Let me juxtapose my orbicular muscle in a state of contraction with yours. She would obviously say, get lost. You see, in that context with my wife, one describes a kiss in terms of meaning, value, purpose, love. What's the true definition of a kiss? Is it the one about carbon dioxide or is it the one about meaning and value? Both are true, but different. And therefore, it's not a matter of one or the other. Actually, both are informative in helping to understand the nature of the world. And so when it comes to the early universe, I'm very happy for Professor Hawking and others to be able to say, yes, we can understand 
how the universe emerged in a quantum fluctuation through a period of inflation into a Big Bang universe. But at the same time, there are why questions. What's the purpose or value of the universe? They're different types of questions, but both are important. Now, you could have pursued a scientific career and you could have kept your deep and committed personal faith. So what brought you to a moment of ordination? I think it was just a sense of what God wants me to do. Now, again, that sounds quite pious and holy. And it wasn't one of those things where I was walking down a street in Newcastle and suddenly it was a blinding light or anything of that sort. It was a sense that God had uh, given me certain gifts. I enjoyed science immensely. Uh, but I also enjoyed uh, leadership in the church. I'd had conversations with various people around me who'd said, maybe God's calling you. And as I read my Bible and said my prayers, there was just a sense that this was God, what God wanted me to do. Now, I have to stress, this was not about me rejecting science. This was not about me getting bored or disillusioned with science. This was just a sense that my vocation in life was more to leading a church than to being a scientist. And the wonderful thing is always that when you give something up for God, it seems to me, you get it paid back many times. And what I didn't expect was that as I left professional science and went back to study and do theology and offer myself as a church leader to the Methodist Church, I've been given back the gift of science in lots of different ways. And there's that sense that God values the scientific background that I have. And, and perhaps churches need to be better at valuing the scientific background of those within congregations, those who live their lives as Christians and professional scientists. That's a vocation as well. When we recorded this conversation, David was the principal of St John's College, Durham, and a professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. But he explained that in September he'd be standing down from this role in order to become director of an international project called Equipping Christian Leadership in an Age of Science. About seven years ago, a friend of mine who's a professional scientist and I bemoaned the fact that when senior church leaders, bishops and others equivalent, when they were asked about science, either in school assemblies or in a radio studio, many of them, their initial thought would be being fearful of science, negative about it, or silent about science. And we felt that had a ripple-down effect because that meant that church leaders or youth workers who had a background in science, if science wasn't being affirmed by their senior church leader, then, you know, is that important to them? And then what about the folk in the pews in the church who live as science teachers or engineers? They felt a little subverted by this leadership. And then that links into this conflict thing that we've talked about in wider culture. And so we started a project where we tried to help senior church leaders to encounter not just science, but scientists, world-leading scientists, who would talk about, whether they were religious or not, what science was about for them, their passions, their excitements, their fears about science. And so uh, we've done that for seven years, and we've got funding for another five years, and we're going to be working not just in the UK, but with a number of international partners. And really, I, I've got to a stage where I can't do the work of a principal and this project. 
And so it's a project which is based in York and London with the Church of England, but also with many other churches. And we've got a sense of how do we provide a culture within the church which looks to science with humility, with joy, with fun, but also with some confidence to say, actually, Christian theology can contribute to this. One of the things that marks out the great scientists is not about getting the answers, it's asking the right questions. And science actually proceeds by asking the right questions in a spirit of curiosity. And so at the heart of growing as a scientist is the ability to ask questions. Sometimes to say, we don't know everything, but we're going to keep asking questions about it. Now for me, faith's a bit like that. One of my favorite disciples of the New Testament is Thomas. Because Thomas is the guy who asks the questions that every other disciple is too embarrassed to ask. You know, so when Jesus says about his death, and you know the way where I am going, and all of the other disciples kind of look at the ground and think, what does he mean by that? Thomas is the one who says, Lord, we don't know what you mean by that you know the way where we're going. And it's only because Thomas asks that question that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Thomas hadn't asked the question, we have never got the famous phrase. And Thomas is not the doubter. He's the questioner of the New Testament. He's the one who's prepared to say that faith allows me to ask questions rather than trying to construct a system where I feel secure in myself. Because we know that the, at, at the heart of any relationship is the joy of finding out about the other person asking questions. I mean, not just telling your own story all of the time. It's actually about finding out from others. And God, I think, has given us this gift as human beings of relationship with him and the curiosity. And rather than meddling in the realm of the gods, which was a Greek idea, Christians believe that God says, go and ask questions. And ask questions about science and ask questions about faith. That doesn't mean that there's a lack of commitment or a lack of trust. Actually, you often ask questions because you've already got a, a level of trust. And so for me, it's been asking questions both as a scientist and as a Christian that actually has deepened my faith, taken my faith forward, and actually enriched my relationship with God. John Hapgood was the former Archbishop of York and a, a research chemist himself. And John Hapgood talked about these moments as war look at that moments where you just go wow gosh and that's a joy i think not just of science but also faith a little bit of love goes a long long way a little love a little love a little bit of love and i'm on my way a little love a little love a long way but we'll get there together a long way, but we'll get there soon. Along the way, we can lean on each other. A little love goes a long, long way. Little drops of rain can trickle down into a puddle. Then the puddles get together, making streams and make a river. The rivers fill the valleys with a roaring and a rushing. Then the little drops of rain have made a wide, 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 wide ocean. A long way, but we'll get there together.
Along the way we can lean on each other A little love goes a long, long way A long way but we'll get there together A long way but we'll get there soon Along the way we can lean on each other A little love goes a long, long way A little love, a little love, a little love A little bit of love written by singer-songwriter Graham Kendrick during the Covid lockdown and it's become a worship favourite ever since. And there was a lot of love about on the programme on Valentine's Day as veteran actress Wendy Craig, now in her late 80s and with a string of hugely popular television series to her credit, talked about her faith. And another popular personality of years gone by, Sir Harry Seacombe, once recorded a song written by Wendy that says so much about her Christian belief. My parents, I think they had some sort of faith... They didn't go to church very much, but they seemed to believe in God. But the one who really led me to Jesus was my granny. She came to live with us. She was blind and uh, quite old and frail, although looking back now, she wasn't all that old. I used to creep into her room because I loved being with her, and I knew she had a tin of sweets under the bed as well. We used to talk about all sorts of things, and I used to curl her hair, and she used to say, "'Well, you make me feel very pretty.' And she started teaching me about Jesus and told me Bible stories, taught me how to pray, say little prayers. And I suppose I caught really quite early a strong faith from my granny. And then I went to Durham High School for Girls, which was really quite closely affiliated to the cathedral in Durham. We were taken there for services and things. And um, I found in, in there a great sense of spirituality and, and a longing to be close to God. So really, my home was followed on by my school and the good teachers there who encouraged us to have faith. So when I was young, I had a really strong faith. But then so many things happened to me. I was working, I got married, I had my first child... And I gradually found that I didn't have time to go to church as often. I think, I think quite honestly, the world took over. I had a very busy professional life. Gradually, I walked away from my faith. My husband wasn't a Christian. Not that he objected to my faith, but I didn't get any encouragement there. And we didn't share anything of it. And I really got very far away from it to the place where I was actually asking myself, what on earth was I doing all that praying and going to church and hymn singing? What, what was all that about? I seemed to be able to manage perfectly well without God and all that. How wrong I was. What happened was... I'd done lots of things that I was not very happy with. And I had a great sense of shame, emptiness, longing for something I didn't know what. And it suddenly hit me. I think I was about 45. My, my dog died. I was very, very fond of my dog. And we used to take lovely walks together. During that time, I did feel myself really extremely happy and peaceful when I was walking my dog. And when he died, I was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. 
And I thought, whatever is the matter with me? Your dog's died. You've had other dogs die before. And then I thought, no, but with this dog, when I'd been walking along, looking at all the beautiful things in the countryside, and I felt so close to God without realizing it. And suddenly I thought, I've got to get back to that innocence, to that security, that the confidence of knowing that God loves me. So I went down to the church and uh, confessed that, that I was really sorry. And I asked God to take me back. And I felt very strongly that he did. And from that moment on, my life changed, completely changed. It's just like a cloak dropping off you, a cloak of shame kind of falls to the ground and suddenly you feel I'm safe I'm safe it's the most wonderful feeling and God works in the most wonderful way because I was in the butchers about two days later and this lady said to me you're Wendy Craig aren't you and I said yes she said, I've been looking forward to meeting you because we have a little group of women that meet on a um, Wednesday morning um, and we have a speaker and um we talk about our faith and we pray together and we give each other strength. Well, she'd never met me before. She didn't know that I'd suddenly come back to the Lord. And uh, so she said, would you like to come? Well, of course, it was God handing me on a plate exactly what I needed. Every Wednesday morning, I used to trot along with all these lovely Christian ladies, some very good speakers. They gave me so much help and encouragement, just when I needed it. That's how God works. In my dressing room, I always keep this book, which is favorite passages from the Bible that I can just leaf through and get comfort from. I just copy them out into this little notebook. And I think probably I have two favorite ones. Well, I'm a very nervous person on stage. I I don't have a lot of confidence. I go out there thinking, oh, I'm really quaking with fear. But if I read this before I go out, and I usually do, it gives me the courage to get out there and do it, you know. This is Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And the other one is, I think we're always looking for peace, for peace of mind. It seems to be something that people long for. And um, this is Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts you. When I'm confused, Lord, show me. Still, small voice.
Sir Harry Seacombe singing the song written by actress Wendy Craig, Show Me the Way. I'm always fascinated to find out why people do what they do. And that was one of my first questions when I had a chance for a brief chat with the Archbishop of York, the Most Reverend and Right Honourable Stephen Cottrell, during his flying visit to the island in the spring of this year. In the late 1970s, he graduated from university with a degree in media studies, a qualification that offered all kinds of career possibilities. So what, I wondered, led him to ordination as a priest in the Church of England? Well, I wasn't brought up going to church, um, so there was no church in my life growing up, and I'm, I'm a bit of an all-or-nothing person, and it's a long story for which there isn't time, but when I became a Christian and became part of the church uh, as a teenager... I think I knew deep inside that I would be ordained. I just didn't tell anybody about it. And I thought it would happen when I was old. In the end, I was 25, so it moved quite quickly. But the other things that I was interested in were writing. And I was interested in the writing and directing side of film, media, television. And thought I might have a career. I did have a little career in that, a very little one. Um, But I... the the theme that runs through it is I, I feel as if I am in the communications business. The church is in the communications business. And we are looking always to find ways of getting our message over. I hope it doesn't sound too corny, but uh, Jesus said, let out your nets for a catch. We need to let out our internets for a catch. And we need to be present in the virtual communities in which we live our lives, as well as the actual communities. I think I do want to say to people listening, we're not abandoning the neighbourhoods and communities, but we do also need to inhabit the other worlds in which all of us live our lives today. My experience over and over again is that people might not think they're very interested in the church, but they are very interested in God. They are very interested in the values by which they want to live their lives and bring up their families. 
there is a longing in the human heart and in the human spirit. I mean, statistics say that more people pray than believe in God. Well, that's an interesting statistic. So some people who don't believe in God still pray. And I think that's evidence of that deep longing in the human heart for something beyond ourselves. And the job of the church is to be alongside people, to serve them and to open up opportunities for them to discover what what we believe to be and and live our lives by the life-changing truth of who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Now, you spent time, a couple of open meetings on the island, inviting anybody to come and meet you and, and, and talk mm. with you. And the theme at the heart of that was becoming a more Christ-centred church. Mm. Is there a sense that you feel that we're drifting? The image I have is of resetting a compass, which you need to do from time to time. So, on the one hand, this is the most obvious thing anybody could say about the church. Is that it, Archbishop? You're saying we need to be a Christ-centred church. Well, that is what the church has always been and will always be. So it's, it's blindingly obvious. But at the same time, it's endlessly profound. What God shows us in Jesus Christ is what it means to be truly human that in Jesus we see this is how humanity is meant to be. In Jesus we have access to God. In Jesus we can become the very best people we are meant to be. And so we spend our whole lives learning what it means to live like Christ and to be like Christ. So, yes, it's a resetting of the compass around that which is most essential and most basic to the Christian life. And I suppose I want to put the emphasis on the word life, the Christian faith, is something that we are called to live out each day. It's fitting this in with all the challenges of the world that are around us. It is, but there's nothing new about this for the church. We can read about it in the New Testament. The church has grown in the refining fire of the questions that new cultures pose as the Christian message was taken across the whole of the world. And we keep learning new things about what it means to follow Christ and to know Christ. And so, yes, our culture and our time, the whole transition from an analogue into a digital world has been a huge challenge for the church. But hopefully we're learning to meet that challenge. People do tend to say that religious people shouldn't get involved in political matters. Mm. You have never shied away from controversial issues and have always been quite firm in your views. I mean, you, you stood out against Trident, and that was quite a few years ago, mm. and most recently have been quoted about your views on the government's uh, immigration policy. Yeah, the Christian faith is about the whole of life, and so therefore it must be about those bits of life that we call politics. I think what the church must seek to avoid is ever being aligned with party politics, and that's where I think people perhaps get confused. Politics is one thing, party politics is another thing. And so the church does not align with any one political party or any one political agenda, but does, without fear or favour, speak up for a moral and ethical vision about how we inhabit the world, has particular things to say about issues of peace and justice. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus. And our faith requires us to speak about the whole of life and particularly for the poor, the marginalised, the excluded. And often, I mean, I, I have great respect for, support for and pray each day for politicians. But the trouble with Britain, often it's the short termism of party politics lurching from one election to another that prevents us from taking a longer view 
and dealing with the long-term challenges that we face. And that's where sometimes not just the church but other bodies can speak in to that and say we need a long-term narrative of hope that will address long-term problems such as child poverty. The big one facing the whole world is the environment. The environment is the issue facing the human race and it's too important to leave just in the hands of our politicians however important their role is. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till travelling days are done. I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll That's Macapella and the Wild Goose Collective and their version of the hymn I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say that's a personal favourite of the Archbishop of York, the Most Reverend and Right Honourable Stephen Cottrell, who you've just heard talking to me during his flying visit to the island in the spring of this year. Another spring visitor to the island was the popular singer and Songs of Praise presenter, Aled Jones.
Alla Jones and his son Lucas and The Lord is My Shepherd. I'm sure many of us remember the filming of several episodes of Songs of Praise here on the island in years gone by. Massed choirs in the cathedral or in the open air on St. Patrick's Isle mixed with interviews with local folk. Well, it seems that, probably for financial reasons, the filming is much simpler now. Only interviews are recorded on location, and when I met up with Alan Jones and his very small production team, they were in the Promenade Methodist Church here in Douglas to meet Karen Norton and her team of volunteers who run Café Lingo, a hugely successful service that welcomes everyone who's new to the island and for whom English isn't their first language. Help with language is given along with learning about island life. It's all given in a very relaxed and supportive atmosphere. And as you'll hear, Alad was very impressed with what he saw. For me, this was the gift of an opportunity. The last time that Alad came to give a concert in the villa, arrangements had been made for me to interview him. But I got COVID and missed not only the interview, but the concert as well. That was a really good excuse of yours to not come and chat to me, though. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were on tour, so uh, myself and Russell at the time, Russell Watson, and uh, we were trying to dodge the dreaded uh, COVID as well. And, it, you know, on tour, it's very, very tricky. But it's, uh, the Isle of Man is always uh, a place I love to come and sing. You know, the villa is, is great. And I've been coming here for, well, many, many years now. But actually, this trip is probably the longest I've spent here because um, usually it's, you know, fly in, do the concert and fly out. I've stayed for a couple of days before, but um, this trip due to Songs of Praise. I've been here and I've seen probably more of the islands than I've ever done before. I understand that you've been looking at the cathedral gardens. I have. You've been out to Nokelo, and of course here at Cafe Lingo where we're having this chat. Yeah, it's an amazing place. You know, I've 
been bowled over really by all the different nationalities here and how great their English. You know, just this afternoon I've spoken to people from Ukraine, from China, from Peru, from Brazil, and they all speak brilliantly. And, and I think, you know, this is something that people all over the world should, you know, take heed and, and, and actually look at what they're doing here in the cafe because, you know, it's all about welcoming people into a community and that's what the church is all about as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, good on the people here in Cafe Lingo for doing that. You know, re, re growth everywhere which is how it should be really you were talking just there about when you were on tour with russell watson mm. and the pressures of of trying to keep one step ahead of covid keep well keep the tour going mm-hmm. do you feel that that you are slightly different in since we've come out of the covid situation i think you take uh, maybe before I took things for granted maybe um and whereas you know i think overnight over a hundred concerts went from my diary and and you, you weren't sure when you'd sing again, you know, and I could sing in the bath or the shower, but it's not the same really. I sing in front of an audience because that's what I love doing, you know, um, and the travelling and everything like that as well. So, yeah, no, I, I, I seem to appreciate everything a lot more than I did and I'm getting older as well, you know, so um, you can't do these things forever, but um, at the moment I'm loving it. You have managed to keep a very private family life mm. and take the strength from that but your children are getting get older and they're, they're coming out into the entertainment world themselves how does that make you feel oh yeah well I'm, I'm proud of them as human beings you know what they want to do is I'm, I'm there just to support them really as a father you know um, and they're lovely people so I'm proud of them for that they obviously get that from my wife not me but my job is just to be a dad and and you know I'm, I'm very lucky now I think I've got the balance right within my work and home life balance but yeah no I keep my home life private and you know I'm not one of those people that invite the cameras into my home really because when I'm there I'm just me. Alan Jones speaking to me when he visited the island in April to record interviews for Songs of Praise, which, as you heard, included Aled spending time at Café Lingo in the Promenade Methodist Church here in Douglas, talking with founder Karen Norton and some of the folk in the café that day. Café Lingo is well established now and is run entirely by a team of enthusiastic, friendly volunteers. And now they need a new coordinating volunteer. Could this be the New Year opportunity you're looking for? If you've got some free time, if you're good at organising things, and if you respect other cultures and belief systems, then Café Lingo wants to hear from you. The right person for the job would also have an experience of teaching English as a foreign language. If this interests you, Tim Norton at Café Lingo is the man to contact. His email is nortonium at gmail.com and nortonium is all one word, N-O-R-T-O-N-I-O-M, no punctuation. The closing date for applications is the 26th of January, so don't delay if you'd like to know more. That email address again is nortonium at gmail.com and the successful applicant will be invited to take up their role in April this year. Richard Littledale is a regular visitor to the programme, and the range of topics that interest him stretch from his vast collection of nativity sets to having those difficult but vital end-of-life conversations and coping with bereavement. He's also contributed some mini-series, short features that we've included over perhaps three or four weeks. One of my favourites was entitled... What happened next? 
During his short time on earth, Jesus' way of teaching was to constantly tell stories, and the stories of his life are how we learn about the miracles he worked, healing people, raising them from the dead, feeding them, loving them, and offering them the fullness of an everlasting life. But it seems to Richard Littledale that the more he reads of the Bible accounts of Jesus' miracles, the more he wants to know what happened next. Let's start with this story from chapter 5 of St. Mark's Gospel. Jesus had met a man who seems to be possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. We're told that the possessed man lived among the tombs, howling and crying day and night, and no one could restrain him any more, although they tried with chains and shackles. When the possessed man saw Jesus, he ran to him, and Jesus drove the troublesome spirit out of him. This according to St Mark's Gospel, is what happens next. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And that's where the Bible story ends, leaving Richard Littledale to wonder what happened next. Without really realising she had done it, she had kept his space. It was not a room. Nobody had a room in this tiny house. All the same, it was his corner. Look, there was the thinning pile of straw on which he had slept. A dent, still in the middle as if only just vacated. There was his cloak, the one with the hole in it where he had plunged his hand into the fire at the bidding of a voice which no one but him had ever heard. There was his little stick gnarled head carved into a mocking face not unlike his own. Every week she would tend these objects as if curating a museum to his memory. She would shake the dust from the cloak, push the edges of the straw back into place and polish the face on the gnarled stick, shuddering a little at what had become of his. Of course, he wasn't that far away down there among the tombstones at the water's edge, but it could have been another galaxy. When friends and neighbours had dragged him away to chain him there, she had not argued. The demons in his head had damaged the family outside it, and he had to go. All their lives were in danger if he stayed, and she knew it was so. All the same, there was a tenderness to this little act of repeated devotion. A homage to the man who once had been. Today she had just finished for this week when there was a commotion outside. She could hear the scuffling of feet, the odd pail and broom knocked over in haste as people rushed to the edge of the dusty road. He's coming, he's coming, they cried and looked anxiously in her direction. By now the children were gathered at her skirts, peering around her at all the excitement and commotion. She wondered whoever they were talking about. 
Was it some famous rabbi or even the man Jesus that everybody was talking about, she wondered. And then the crowd parted and he stood there. In his face was a kindness she had long since forgotten. Around the corners of his eyes was a smile which had once melted her heart. He looked upright and free and beautiful. When the children rushed towards their half-remembered daddy, she did not try to stop them. He was home. Thank you, Richard Littledale. And Richard will be back early in the new year to tell us why we should all be out in the garden. In May, I was in Liverpool and I actually made an episode of the programme during Eurovision week. I didn't have tickets for anything, but the atmosphere in the city was a good enough experience. This is what I told you about at the time. Eurovision was everywhere, and I was caught up in the carnival atmosphere that filled the city. But very obvious also was the deeper sense that it should be Ukraine hosting the event, that Liverpool was only caretaking Eurovision because war was preventing the Ukrainian people from sharing with the world their music, their traditions and their hospitality. And we were reminded of the very real danger when we later found out that, as Ukraine's Eurovision entry, the duo Vorchi, stepped onto the stage in Liverpool last Saturday night, Russian missiles targeted the act's home city of Ternopil, demolishing a Christian aid warehouse there and destroying around £13,000 worth of food parcels due to be delivered to local families. But there was something else happening. Churches together on Merseyside were out in force and led by the evangelism and growth team of the Methodist Church in Britain were basically everywhere in Liverpool city centre, walking around, chatting, leading times of prayer everywhere from the entrance to the Eurovision village to city centre churches of all denominations. Their theme was Imagine Peace. I went to a really powerful time of worship in the Roman Catholic Cathedral of Christ the King and its extracts from that service calling us to imagine a world of togetherness and unity that I'd like to share with you now. The service was led jointly by Methodist Minister Reverend Jackie Belfield, who works as a mission enabler on Merseyside, alongside Major Alistair Versfeld, who, with his wife Major Cathy, are mission development officers at Strawberry Fields. Yes, the Strawberry Fields. Major Alistair Versfeld explains the work of the Salvation Army there. So I'm the, the mission development officer for Strawberry Fields. And uh, many will know that Strawberry Field is the place where John Lennon used to climb over the fence and go play. It was a, a Salvation Army children's home since 1936. And now it's a training hub for young people with learning difficulties and other barriers to employment. And uh, we train them and we, we seek um, long-term sustainable employment for young people that need that extra support in, in our society. So that's what we're doing now. And it's a visitor center. So if you've never been, you have to come. We've got an exhibition and a very, very peaceful garden. And certainly we find that people are experiencing God on our site. 
We don't force it down anybody's throat, you know. But we, we believe that actually as we let our, our light shine, we can bring hope and light and, and love into people's lives. History tells us that there's never been a, a, a time when the world has been at peace. You know, there's always been a war somewhere in the world. And wouldn't it be great to imagine peace in our world? I'm the Dean here of the Cathedral and so I want to just welcome you all very warmly to our Metropolitan Cathedral here. And it is lovely that we're able to gather like this, joining together in prayers for peace. This representatives, church leaders from right across the, the different traditions on Merseyside and the Wirral and our musicians and choirs represent the different traditions of the churches across Merseyside. We come together in unity to pray for peace. There are so many nations that we want to remember and hold in our prayers. Alan Lewis shared the story of the Ukraine Welcome Centre in Blundell Sands on Merseyside. Here's just a little of his very moving story. I don't really want to say what we have done. I'd rather say what has happened. Just as background, I'm a circuit steward at Crosby Methodist Circuit, a, a lay preacher and an old man. Just days after the invasion of Ukraine, my wife showed me a flyer asking for practical aid for food, first aid and clothing. And she said, oh, we'll ask our friends and collect it in our spare room. And well, I said, there's an empty church we could use. Little Sands Methodist Church had closed and I asked the leadership team and they said, yes, okay. And half a dozen of us opened up on Sunday the 6th of March. And within three hours, every pew was piled high with aid. It seats about 400. People came, they stayed, they sorted, they came back week after week, packing, labelling, all sent to Ukraine via International Aid Trust, tons and tons of it. And we're still collecting, and we send a transit van full every two to three weeks, and we have a core of 70 regulars who have given so much. And you know what? We don't ask them why they do it. We don't ask which church or faith, because they would say none. Then the government introduced the Homes for Ukraine sponsorship scheme, and we welcomed new arrivals with uh, SIM cards, food, toiletries, clothes. Now 90% of the displaced Ukrainians are women and children. And only a few 
had good English, most had little or none, and arriving maybe with just a backpack or a family of five with one suitcase. Well, the centre continues to be a place where they can be Ukrainian together. I wish I could show you a video of the Ukrainians showcasing their culture in song and dance, their pride in their culture, their nation, and their courage and resilience whilst living in such threatening circumstances. And the Ukraine Welcome Centre has been hugely supported by so many, so it's a massive thank you to all of them. But the heroes are the Ukrainians who are here, bearing such loss and uncertainty, who are making a life here and wanting to repay the generosity they have received. There's nothing ever happens that promotes any faith. There is nothing overtly Christian. A Ukrainian says to me, why do you people do this? You do this for nothing. Why do you do this? All I can say that this feels a lot like a miracle and it looks to me a lot like the kingdom of God. of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining and our prayer is that God's love is shining in parts of the world where there are wars and may the blessing of Almighty God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever Amen And I'm afraid that's where we must leave this review of the past year. And I'm very aware that I could only bring you a few of the many interesting and inspiring guests who've joined me to be at your service each Sunday morning. I look forward to meeting many more in the coming year. Next Sunday, January the 7th, we return to our usual time slot of half past nine. But if listening then isn't convenient, do remember that all the programmes are available as podcasts via our website, manxradio.com. And here's a little bit of notice board news if you'd like to share with others in a prayerful start to the new year. There's an invitation to Balafesson Chapel in Port Erin. You're welcome to join them for a New Year's Eve afternoon tea today at half past five. And that'll be followed by a service at half past six, led by Reverend Chris Belfield. 
and if you would like to pray in the new year as it arrives, then you're warmly welcome to do so at Union Mills Methodist Chapel. They have a watch night service tonight, led by Mrs Margaret Newton. Light refreshments will be served from 11 o'clock onwards, with the watch night service itself starting at half past 11 and continuing over midnight into the start of New Year's Day. So, till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening, and I wish you and those you love a truly happy, peaceful, and blessed new year. Blen Weiner. The Nation Station.